So here we are. It is several days after the premiere of The Wheel of Time. They have dropped their first three episodes and you have showed up because you want to hear what I think because, well, I've been talking about it for like a year. And considering that I dropped this podcast, just premiered it for the first time in 2021, we just wrapped the first season of the first 10 episodes ever. Um, And then I decided that I was going to do a season 1B because the Wheel of Time was out and I really wanted to talk about it. That's why we're all here, right? That's where we're all here. Um, And I'm really, really excited. I'm kind of coming down off of my Wheel of Time high, so to speak. Um, And I'm ready to talk Wheel of Time and dish it with y'all. So welcome. This is the Obsessible Podcast. And on this show, I talk TV and movies like I would with my girls, my colleagues, my booze and my bass. And this is episode one of season 1B, which which is dedicated to the Wheel of Time. So like I said, if you've been listening to my podcast from the launch, you know how excited I have been about this series coming to TV and how long I have anticipated its arrival. Uh, I didn't have a podcast when another favorite of mine, Game of Thrones, hit television. But since I have a podcast now, I'm definitely going to use it to talk about the wheel and review each episode while the show is currently airing. You can expect that I will also do the same when House of the Dragon premieres in 2022 and also when Lord of the Rings premieres in September of 2022. And I might also dive in at some point with Outlander as well as uh, A Discovery of Witches. I'm clearly a big time fantasy fan. So let's talk about that. I am an avid reader of fantasy, particularly high fantasy, um, and I've been very, very lucky as a reader to have had my most favorite series be turned into movies and or into television shows. So some series like the original Lord of the Rings books, including the prequel The Hobbit, were best made into films. And that's not just because there wasn't, that's not because there wasn't enough to make them into television shows, because obviously there's going to be a television show, um, but that is just because there were three novels, a total of four, if you include The Hobbit. So that really kind of means that at some point, if you push past a fourth season, in this particular example, you end up with the writers on the show having to decide for themselves what should happen next um, because you run out of source material. But when I began reading The Wheel of Time and I started conceptualizing the possibility of it being made into a show or a movie, I immediately thought to myself that The Wheel of Time would be best adapted as a television show for the simple um, fact that there are 14 books in the series. And that makes for a lot of TV. There are also a lot of characters um, in the series. So that makes for a lot of dynamic viewing and just gives the possibility to something being adapted and, and, and kept in uh on this on kept streaming on the screen for many 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 seasons and it's finally happening happening we're here the show is here um so just to give you my background in terms of my introduction to this particular series and this fandom uh i'll tell you how i was introduced to the wheel of time so i was introduced to the series by robert jordan and brandon sanderson by a friend who's equally as into fantasy as I am. I had just finished reading the available novels for Game of Thrones at the time. So this is well over a decade ago. Um, and also known as A Song of Fire and Ice. Um, and was looking for something new to read. 
And around that time, they had already announced that um, A Song of Fire and Ice was coming to TV and would be called A Game of Thrones. So on HBO, right? So he was interested in knowing more about that. And I was interested in finding something new. So we kind of exchanged thoughts. He told me that this is his number one favorite series of all time and gave me, I think, the first book, which was The Eye of the World. And um, I read it and devoured it. I, from the moment that the Atrolics broke down Tam and Rand's door, I was, I was in, I was in there like swimwear. I was, I was hooked and I didn't let up until I finished the series, which I actually had to wait for the series to finish because the final book in the series actually hadn't been released when I started reading them. So I can't even imagine people who started like back in the 80s and had to wait until the early 2000s in order to have the story finished for them. That is a very long time to wait. But hey, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you know all about that kind of torture. Um, in any case... Uh, I was I was completely sold on the story and loved how big the story was and how big the world that was attached to it was as well. So you can just imagine how completely freaked out in a great way I was when I found out that they were making the show, uh, they were making the books into a television show. And it happened super randomly. I was actually on the internet looking for information about another adaptation that I had heard speculated about, which was the, the Vampire Chronicles. For a, a long time, I was Anne Rice was my favorite author. And while I was looking for information about the Vampire Chronicles, I stumbled across the announcement for The Wheel of Time for Amazon Prime. I literally lost my mind. Like, I mean, literally jumping up and down and squealing. Um, I wish I could say I was at home when this happened, but I was not. I was at work in my office. This is pre-pandemic. And uh, literally everyone around me was like, what the heck? What the heck? What the heck? What's happening? What's going on here? I'm pretty sure they thought I'd won the lottery or something. Um, and I honestly wish I could say that me being exuberant like that was like jarring for my colleagues, but alas, it is not. Mostly they were just amused because they're like, ah, Nicole's being Nicole again. <laughs> um, in any case, so fast forward to 2019, I decided, because I expected the show to come out in 2020, I decided that in 2019, I was going to start reading the books again and started and then stopped, pandemic hit, and then was like, nah, this is the perfect time for me to prepare. Let me start again. And so um, I started reading them again and it took me all year to get through them. And I tell you, I it was such a much better experience, I think, because now I'm just way more familiar with the plot and storyline and characters. And um, I really had a lot of the same feelings that I had when I read it the first time. But, you know, I, I still, like, I laughed out loud. I cried more than once. I was definitely angry. I oh, definitely was talking to the books. Um, you know, just having full-on dialogues as to what was going on in the plot based on whatever character was doing what thing, uh, whether that be wool-headed or, or made sense. <laughs> um, but I, I definitely enjoyed the experiencing of rereading them. And when I got to the end, I really kind of didn't know what to do with myself, realized I hadn't read A New Spring yet and decided to read New Spring. And that just led me into a full reread all over again because now I knew at this point, by the time I'd finished, I knew when the series was coming out. So I was like, okay, I have a month. I think I had like two months at that point um, until the series was premiering and was like, okay, let me get through the first three books. I have not finished the third book yet. I'm basically at the end, just a few chapters away from the ending of the third book, but the show is out and I'm ready to talk about it. Uh, if you're interested and were a non-reader prior to watching the show and you want to read, 
you can actually go to Podbean and look up the Wheel of Time. Um, there is a podcast that is literally an audible book download of the entire series, all 14, every single episode. It's fantastic. That's how I got through my, this reread this time. So just like you're listening, um, to me now, you can go ahead and actually do that, um, on Podbean and listen to every single novel chapter by chapter. And the narration is absolutely fantastic. So I'm sure you guys will enjoy that. In any case... If you are new here, welcome to the Obsessible Podcast. I am your host, Nicole, also known as Nikki, to my besties. And if you are listening, we are now totally besties. Thank you very much for listening. Tell another friend so we can continue to build this tribe of fantasy-loving podcast listeners who want to talk and 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 commiserate over this show that has taken the world by storm. I mean, Amazon has thrown a lot of money behind it. Um also, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to follow. For the next five weeks, we're going to be talking all things Wheel of Time. I'm going to upload these episodes weekly. I'm going to give everybody an opportunity to watch the Friday, watch Friday's episode. I'll probably watch it about three or four times before I even get to recording it and recording the podcast, that is. And then we'll record during the week so that you can prepare for the next week. Um, feel free to talk to the cast. I mean, you know, listeners have told me that they're, they're, they do that like it's normal. And it is normal around here. Weird is not weird. Weird is normal here. If you have not figured that out. There will be spoilers for the book. So just got to let you guys know that. And for the show on these episodes. So definitely watch first and then come over and take a listen. All right, let's get into it. This is season 1B pure Wheel of Time review. The Wheel of Time turns and ages come and pass leaving memories that become legend. Wow. I had to open the review segment of this review episode <laughs> with Moraine's Wheel of Time speech because, I mean, it's it's going to be iconic. At the, by the time it's over, we're, we're all going to know that speech word for word. If you don't know it already, like the song... Anyway, you know what? Let me not get ahead of myself. <laughs> I'd be doing that. I'd be doing that. But... Let's jump into the reviews and let's start at the beginning with episode one. So in episode one, at the very beginning, we have this cold opening and we hear and watch as Moraine kind of prepares to embark on this journey to find out who the dragon reborn is. She doesn't know who it is. She doesn't know if it's a man or a woman, which was the first departure from the book. Immediately from the very beginning of this adaptation, they're letting you know things are not going to be business as usual and you can't really expect that when you're adapting from film to from uh from book to tv or from book to film that it's going to be exactly the same but this was a big departure and I was just like y'all y'all better know what you're doing because I immediately got nervous (laughs) immediately got nervous she also goes on to um to to basically state that she needs to do this before um, that person, whoever the dragon dragon is, can be found by the forces of the dark. F- 
from there, we immediately go into this scene of the Red Aja. So you, if you're not familiar, you don't even know who these women are. You just know that they're all dressed in red and they're chasing down this guy. And you're just literally like, okay, well, what did he do to deserve this? But Liana, uh, no, not Liana. I'm so sorry, Wheel of Time fans. Uh, Leandrin uh, decides to deliver a very Leandrin type speech about why she's doing what she's doing because she really believes that she's what she's doing is for the best. And because that's what she believes, um, she basically, we don't really see what she does to him. We just know that whatever she's doing to him is painful. All of this happens with Moraine and her warder, Lan, um, overseeing this scene. And Moraine immediately decides that this young man who um, is being attacked by the Red Aja, um, who are also Aes Sedai, so if you hadn't picked that up yet, they are also Aes Sedai, um, is not the Dragon Reborn, even though he meets the basic criteria. Uh, for being that person. So they decide to move on. Here's where the second departure from the book comes in. She indicates that they're going to go to the two rivers. That is not the departure. But because there are four or rumors of four Taviran around the same age uh, who could potentially be the person that they're looking for. I was like, four? Excuse me? Big, big, big change from the book. But here's the thing. When you're reading the novels, right, you're going to find yourself, and I often did, even now that I've this is my third time reading them, that maybe perhaps other there should have been more Taviran characters. And now that they have decided that there is at least one other Taviran character, it, like... It, okay, you know when like a change is forced on you <laughs> and then it's like, no, 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 I don't want this change. Okay, so that's kind of how I felt immediately when she was like four. But now that like I go back and think about how I feel while I'm reading about the books and understanding what the characters are getting into, I'm kind of like, okay, that actually makes sense. Um, because I myself thought, why didn't he include others in this group of Taviran or make other characters Taviran as well? Two of them specifically. Let me explain to you what Taviran is or what that what that means. You're I, I figure at some point they're going to explain it. Moraine says it. She doesn't then she does not explain what Taviran is. Uh and she doesn't even explain to them. Like she doesn't even tell them that they could potentially be Taviran when we meet them, but whatever. Uh, let me tell you. Okay. So a Taviran person, according to this mythology and in this world, are people who are born into an age who are tied to the Wheel of Time. The pattern of the age is woven around these people and they can manipulate events and people around them. Um, it's kind of like being able to use the force in Star Wars. Actually, it's a lot like that, um, but you'll just not, you're not going to necessarily see any Jedi mind tricks as a result of a person being Taviran. But the the pattern does bend to around them and they do influence people, places, events, etc. And in a major, major way at different times. You can be very being Taviran is just being strong, period, but you could be strongly Taviran or not as strong Taviran. Um 
And you're going to meet some very, very, very strong Taverin in this particular show. I don't know how they're going to display that, what that's going to look like, but she mentions it. So I'm assuming that they're going to end up coming back to it and using it. They actually, it's really important. And I hope that they do come back to it and use it because I mean, literally three episodes come go by and after she says it once, it doesn't really come back up again. So we'll see how that plays out, but I'm sure they'll use it again. And in any case, from there, Moraine and her warder, a warder is basically a trained fighter, expert swordsman, expert in hand-to-hand combat, and that person is portrayed by Lan Mandragoran. And uh, a warder, not all Aes Sedai have warders, Moraine is Aes Sedai, and um, <clears throat> because, not, because some Aes Sedai don't believe in warders, okay? And it's just because they have things, something against men. But most Aes Sedai from the Ajas, from this different Ajas, do have a warder. And Moraine's warder is Lan. And he's there to help defend her against things that she cannot use the one power against. Uh, which is not a lot, truth be told. But an arrow will kill an Aes Sedai as quickly as another Aes Sedai hurling stone after them. So, I mean, a warder is useful. Um, and the warder bond is very, very um, close-knit. And you're closer to the than a friend. but And it's an important relationship to have and 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 Aes Sedai are very 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 uh possessive and very um protective of their warders for very specific reasons which I'm not going to tell you guys now because I don't want to give too 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 much away but uh it'll come become apparent going further all right so now they've decided they're going to head to the two rivers. They've heard of these Tiverin, or Moraine has heard these rumors of these Tiverin, and is she needs to determine whether or not any one person uh, who is in this group is could truly be the Dragon Reborn. Um, so we find ourselves in the two rivers, um, Emmons Fields specifically, and we get very quick character introductions. So episode one does not do a very good job of shepherding us slowly towards the chase. They actually, and that was actually an issue for me. I found that pacing, which is super important um, when adapting a story um, and can ruin it, truth be told, if we're rushing to the plot devices, um, I found that the pacing was off in the first episode. We were working, the story was working too hard to get us to the inciting incident um and then the aftermath of that too quickly like we were just moving there too fast i didn't really know who these people were much about them i wanted to know more you know if, taking it from a perspective of just being a watcher but obviously having just finished the books actually still in the process of reading um does make it a little bit difficult but i am trying to do watch the show with an open mind but nonetheless Pacing was probably um, the biggest issue that I had with episode one. So from there, we're we're now we're in Emmons Field, and we really quickly get to see who the friends are: Rand, Perrin, and Matt. We also are made aware that something momentous has just just happened for Egwene, which I actually loved their depiction of how she joins the womanhood or joins the women's circle within Emmons Field, and how that. Uh, community is important to this particular culture of people and how the way that they live and, and govern their lives. 
Um, I thought that that was really, really um, a lovely representation of something that we don't really get a, a deeper insight into in the books. And I loved that how they did this depiction. We also get to meet uh, Nynaeve, who is the wisdom of Emmons Field, who's a feisty perpetually angry or annoyed, um, very strong, defiant young woman. And the actress who plays Nynaeve, Zoe Robbins, is nailing her portrayal. Um, especially when we get into episode two and three, that's when you really get to see who Nynaeve is and what she's made of. We also get to meet the peddler Padan Fane, who's played by Johan Myers. Um, this was the first character introduction where I literally was blown away. Like, I looked at the man and I was like, geez, if that ain't Pat on fame, like, y'all nailed the casting on that choice. Nailed it. He is, he is Pat on fame epitomized. And I don't even know how that's possible because Pat on fame is not a real person. Um, but if Pat on fame was a person, it would be Johan Myers. Um, just absolutely amazing. And even his interactions when we when he comes into town and then sees Matt and and does a little cl clandestine deal with Matt, um, how he delivers his lines, everything is so fane and just absolutely enjoyable. Um, perfect casting. After many rewatches, I've literally come to feel that way about a lot of the cast, but Padan Fane was the first character who I was just like, yes, that's him. Yes, you guys nailed it. <laughs> um, I was excited. I, I, I will say, like, literally, I was at this point in the episode, I was just so in shock. Like, I was just shook. I was in shock. Like, I couldn't get past that I was actually watching people portray these characters on screen. That I, I, I wasn't actually having any feelings about the show. Just shock. Just utter shock. Um, and I swear that shock didn't wear off for a good two days. This show had me by the throat. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like, I, like, I was obsessively p playing things over in my head, like, constantly. Like, I just couldn't let it go. Um, and by Sunday, I had watched episode one about four times and episodes two and three about three times each. Um, it's, yeah, I... Yeah, it's it, it's one of those things that you, you've loved and lived with something in your head and imagination for so long and then you see it in a way that's real that now you have to like reconcile your feelings and what your imagination did with it and what you're actually seeing on the screen. It's actually the same way I felt about uh, The Lord of the Rings, especially when um, they introduced Gollum and we heard Gollum speak for the first time. I actually... I was so blown away by that moment because I just was like, that's exactly how he sounded in my head. And I thought that was that was actually probably one of the coolest uh, adaptation experiences I'd had from book to film or book to TV ever uh, up until that point. Um, yeah, so it's the same kind of shock. Like, is this, I can't believe this is really happening moment that I was having uh, with the show. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it took me a while to come down. So it literally was like, um, so I started watching Thursday night cause it was available to me before midnight and it was really late, but, um, I really wanted to watch and decided that I was not going to wait until Friday, but I did watch only episode one and two. And then I waited and watched episode three on Friday. And then that, that just caused me to watch episode one and two all over again. So there's like, every time I go in and we'll rewatch something, I just watching everything from the beginning. Cause it's like, why the heck not? Um, 
So after Padan Fane shows up, if you are a fan of the books, you know what is about to happen next. But obviously, it does take time for the show to get us there. And, um, but before like all of that does happen, we get a glimpse into these characters. Just a glimpse, right? So it, it appears like there is, well, not appears, Perrin is married. Perrin is married, okay? major, major, major departure from the books. I was shocked, thrown. I literally was like, how, why? Like how, but why? But like, but how, who is this person? Who is he married to? Have we even heard this person's name before? Is this actually a character? No, she's purely created for the show. But after I started to think about what happens with her and with Perrin, it started to make perfect sense because fundamentally Perrin is described as like, he is a gentle giant, right? He is the friend who is um, incredibly physically strong and imposing, but he would not hurt a fly. Like, you know, um, he's the one who thinks, very careful thinker. He thinks things through. He wants to consider all of the options before making a decision. Um, the last thing in the world parent would ever want to do is hurt somebody. Um, and there is something growing inside of parent that he then becomes at odds with. But in the book, it's not explained in a way that really kind of defines why he feels the way he feels. But this, giving him a wife and what happens with that particular situation during the attack on Emmons Field during Winter's Night is perfect because it gives Perrin motivation and reasoning behind everything he feels going forward into the rest of the series. So although at the beginning I was like, what the hell are you guys doing? When I got to the end of the episode, I understood very clearly what they were doing and was totally behind it. To me at that point, I was like, ah, aha. This makes sense. And obviously I know that they, they consider everything before they make these decisions, right? And put it down in the script and actually go forth and filming it. Um, and Rafe Jenkins, who's the executive producer and showrunner and who developed it for Amazon, uh, is a super fan. He's been read and reread these novels many, 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 many times. Um, and they had consultants who were also super fans on the show. So I'm completely aware, thoroughly understand that they've considered many many things when making these things making this show um but i literally was just shook when that first that was first um introduced by matt who who talks about um parent not parent being married because and therefore having no life and i literally was like oh my gosh which also makes these characters a little bit older than they are in the books so um which is good because they're going to be going through some serious life things and they're almost a little too young to be going through them in 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 the books um some of the things that they experience but from 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 the fact that they made that choice i actually kind of like it um i like that a lot we also get to see that rand and Egwene are not just over are not just like staring at each other longingly from <laughs> from across the room. Rand and Egwene have a biblical relationship, y'all. I couldn't even. I couldn't even. I was like, what? <laughs> what? 
this is crazy. Um, I, but I liked that, but I was just like, woo, this is interesting. Um, it's interesting. And then there's like the whole concept that like, obviously, you know, Egwene has just joined the women's circle and they seem to be having different differings of opinion as to what life could potentially look like because there's a new opportunity for Egwene. And of course, Egwene being Egwene, she wants to take it. She is, um, Madison, Madeline is doing a great job. Madeline Madsen. I should probably figure out what her real name is. <laughs> but <laughs> the young one who's cast to portray Egwene is doing a wonderful job as her. She's, she's coming across as very Egwene. Um, and I'm actually enjoying her portrayal. I'm actually also really enjoying um, Marcus Rutherford's portrayal of Perrin. I think he it, he's perfect. And when you get into episode two, you start to see how perfect Marcus is for the role. He is literally embodying the character of Perrin. Um, and, okay, so back to Rand and Egwene. I wasn't really expecting that departure, but I'm here for it. Like, I mean, why not? Like, one of the but one of the things I will say about the books that I just was annoyed by was that Robert Jordan strayed from depicting scenes of intimacy. And it may be that the show will do the same. Like, I really, really hope that we what we saw between Rand and Egwene is cut because of who the characters are and not because that is how they deal with intimacy throughout the entire series. Sorry if that makes me sound like a pervy weirdo, but uh, yeah, I want a fully realized visual representation of these characters' lives. Like, fully realized. And they do fall in love. <laughs> um, some more than others. <laughs> if you know, you know. But in any case, um, yeah, like, I, I just want to see what this plays out on screen. I'm not saying, like, it's got to be rated R, you know? But, like... Give us a little something here. Give us a little something. These cut to the next days is like, ah, annoying. Anyway, <laughs> from here, it's the attack on Emmons Field, and that means go time. Trollocs and a fade. Trollocs and a fade. Ah, oh my God. They attack the town, and they literally look so amazing. Uh, you could tell that they chose a mix of practical and CGI effects for these monstrosities, and it's totally awesome. You gotta have to, like, kind of think orcs in The Lord of the Rings, which were also done with a mix of practical effects and, um, and CGI. Uh, and this is actually where we get a full glimpse into what using the One Power actually looks like to us as the Watcher. Um, and truth be told, as So in the books, to the Watcher, um... An Aes Sedai weaving weaves would look like nothing, right? And obviously they can't do that when you're adapting to a visual medium. So they had to actually show us what this looked like and they did a really great job of that. I actually liked um, the way that the weaving looked and um, really at this point is like where we, we got to really see some excellent uh, production design and some art direction that was just beautiful. Some of the sweeping um, uh, wide shots, um, land doing his land water thing, Moraine coming in and just decimating Trollocs um, was just, just too bomb. Like just too, too, too bomb. I did cringe a few times, um, 
yeah, I cringed a few times, but you know, fundamentally I was able to accept uh, when I thought it through, like what I was seeing and um, just understanding some of the choices that they were making. So far, I feel like, so, you know, after this, um, there is really nowhere to go but out, like away. They've, they've got to run away. But before I even do that, let me, before I even talk about them leaving and the end of episode one, uh, there was a couple of moments in the Trollic attack that I absolutely loved. Um, and one was when a group of women who are obviously from the women's circle attack a Trollic and kill it. Like they team up and like just slay its ass. And I absolutely love that. I thought that was like, yeah, you better let these, these fools know that they're not, you're not going to be any easy meat. Loved that. Um, and then finally, it's literally the next morning. Rand was <clears throat> off defending his home and his bringing his, bringing Tam down the mountain because they were attacked separately. He has no idea what has happened in Emmons Field and um, rolls into town in the morning where everything is like dusty and uh, smoking still, basically. The town is a ruin and realizing that now, you know, they have to leave because now there is a much larger army with a few couple of fists of Trollocs um, and another fade or the same fade coming to pursue them, pursue after them. So also one more moment that I want to mention during the attack that I really loved was the actual very end of it when Moraine um, throws, is like literally using earth and which is one of the powers and uh, removing bricks from, she could have been using air too, truth be told, um, removing bricks from the building, which I think actually was the inn and hurling them at the Trollic army. And then she actually collapses at the exact same moment that the building collapses. And then Lan runs in, uh, in advance of the cloud of dust and covers her. Um, so that she doesn't get hurt. Loved that. Loved that moment. It was so just epic and huge. I thought that was great. So again, back to Rand walking into town in the morning. He's kind of like, oh my God, what the heck? Um, obviously, Egwene is super happy to see him because one of the one of the things that we didn't expect to happen from the night before was that uh, Nynaeve gets dragged off into the dark by... A random trollic and we're literally like wait huh what the heck um nobody saw that coming so you know a Gwaine at this point is just like grieving but doing what she has to because you know she's been apprenticing with Nynaeve and so she's obviously trying to help uh heal as many in her, uh, people as possible and, and help them along so she's super happy to see Rand and we're all kind of super happy to see Rand that is a much longer sequence in the book and there is a lot that actually happens in that sequence of getting Rand getting from the cabin to back to town. And they actually had to cut a lot. They had to cut that for very obvious reasons because a lot is given away in that sequence. So um, if we're going to focus on showing and not telling, that it definitely had to go. Um, and then there's a sequence that happens that should have happened at this moment but doesn't. And it does actually happen in episode two. But that's pretty much where we end off with episode one. And I have to say, thoroughly 
enjoyed it. Not so much at the very first watch, but again, but after I watched it again, um, and the shock started to wear off and I wasn't sitting there in like, you know, judgment of every little moment. Um, it definitely became enjoyable and I actually started to really, really love it once the shock started to wear off. Like I said, it took a few days, <laughs> but episode one ended off and our heroes have been determined and they are now on a path that is going to forever change their lives and the world that they live in as we seek to discover who is the Dragon Reborn. That was episode one. All right, so episode two, let's get into it. So the episode opens with the introduction of my literally most hated group of characters within the books. Like, woo-hoo, what I tell you, I hate them? <laughs> baby, I hate them, okay? Um, and not surprisingly, the leader of one faction of this group is who we meet first. And that person is Eamon Valda, who is the leader of the Questioners or the Hand of the Light of the Children of the Light, not so affectionately called White Cloaks for obvious reasons. Literally in this moment, the show sets up an apparent rivalry, uh, hatred, if you will, that um, is literally only hinted at in episode one, which is the hatred of the White Cloaks for the Aes Sedai. Uh, it also sets us up for an our first encounter between our heroes and this literally horrid group of men. Um, what I'm waiting and anticipating, what I was waiting for and anticipating seeing was how the, like, whether or not they were going to be able to make me hate them even more or as much as I did while reading the books. And yes, the answer is yes. Because <laughs> when we finally have them encounter our heroes later on in the episode, Eamon Valda is doing something that I literally am like, that sums up exactly who you are, you trash human. Hate him. Anyway, <laughs> he's terrible. <laughs> I'm literally going off the rails, but I, it's going to be interesting to see because there are some very clear differences between these white cloaks and how they're depicted in the books. And I'm just going to keep going back and forth because I do want to give you guys a sense of what these characters are like from the novels, um, um, as opposed to how they appear on the screen, even though they're doing a very good job of, of how they appear on the screen. I still want to be able to show you that there is there are differences, um, which you might have expected, but not necessarily that there are differences, what those differences are. So one of the things I actually like about episode two is, because it, is that it provides us with a deeper understanding of the characters, which is great. We need that. We need to know who they are. Um, and it really does reveal more about who Moraine is and what is important to her. Um, one of the things that is super cool about this episode is how Moraine really helps the Emin Fielders to know more about who they are as a whole and as individuals. Because they're very sheltered. They've lived a sheltered mountain village life. They don't have any real understanding of what the world is really like. And, um, and to some extent, they don't really know who they themselves are are like what they're capable of mostly right you're you you've already be, always been put in certain circumstances you never know what you're capable of until you're put in other circumstances so this whole journey is really that it's not just a journey to discover who the dragon reborn is and to defeat the dark one it is also a journey of self-discovery right 
I figure I'm hoping that you guys figured that out. So episode two sets these kids up on this path to not just um, save themselves and their families and their their way of life and life in general, but also to figure out who they are. We also see the famous stubbornness of the two, of two reverse folks, uh, particularly that of one Randolph Thor, who doesn't seem to trust Moraine at all, even though she's saved his life and the life of his father. It's very like, mm, sir, pipe down. But I kind of get it. Like this woman shows up, tells you that you and your friends may be the reincarnation of a hated individual, then tells you that you all must leave. I guess skepticism would be par for the course, but the way in which that is portrayed is like, dude, you know you would be dead if it wasn't for me, right? Like, all of y'all would be dead? You, you, yeah, you knew that, right? So when she finally just is like, I'm done, and rides off and leaves them gawking after Rand literally throws a full-on temper tantrum is actually super funny to me because that is, that's very Moraine. And there's a moment that I'm hoping that they put in here. I really, really hope there's a speech she gives and she lets them know. Like, it's you know who she is when she says what she says in this moment. And I hope, I'm not going to say it because I hope they actually use it. <laughs> um, so in addition to, so also in this episode, in addition to Fades and Trollocs, we also get our first glimpse of another hidden menace. And that is the man with the eyes of fire. So in this particular representation, he's quite solid. I kind of was hoping that he would be a little more ephemeral, um, but for the moment, for the moment, until he does what he's intending to do. Um, but it, and I was as I was watching, I was like, oh my god, this totally gives me Sauron vibes, like really like Sauron through the Palantir vibes. I'm diving headfirst into Nerville, and so. I'm, I'm I'm mentioning things that are canon from other big world series, and that particular tidbit is from the Lord of the Rings, and uh, the Palantir. I'll just explain really quickly. You know, in the movies, if you haven't seen the movies, it's a little ball, almost like a, almost like what you would consider like a, uh, well, oh my god, like a, a crystal ball. It's a crystal ball, um, and uh, you can if you have a corresponding one. You can actually see and communicate through it. So in in essence, what ends up happening is one of the hobbits finds it. It's connected to Sauron. Sauron can see them through it. And then he has this visualization of the actual eyeless lid. Anyway, but in the Hobbit films, there is a actual, like from the eyeless lid, you go to like the form of a man. So that was kind of the vibe that I was getting. I'm so sorry that I dove off that, that very nerdy cliff, but it is what it is. That's what you're here for. I mean, we're talking about the Wheel of Time. <laughs> we figured it out, right? We figured it out? Okay, good. Anyway, back to the White Cloak. Uh, the, and the first encounter between them and our heroes. So let's just say there are two things wrong with this meeting. I'm just going to tell you what they are because I, I I literally was like, whoa, what? And I can forgive it, but I have to, I have to call it out. All right. I understand that there will be changes, but this is such a massive move towards moderation that it's a little bit hard to swallow so I need to see how this further plays out if they truly are as moderate as they just made them seem. So the White Cloaks believe fundamentally that anyone who can touch or uses the one power is evil. They are dark friends. The Aes Sedai are witches. They call them that all the time in the novels. Um, they're supposed, they are fundamentally and adamantly opposed to Aes Sedai completely. So for Joffrey Bornhold, which was the man who, when they met him, he was like, can you all dismount? Um, to tell Moraine to seek out healing from an Aes Sedai would literally never happen in a million years. Like literally never would happen. 
Um, and the second thing, even mentioning that they were involved in a, in a trollic attack would have had them arrested, like literally out of the blue, like, because as much as the, the white cloaks are fully completely aware that the dark one exists, evil exists, the one power is real. There are things that they don't believe in. They don't necessarily believe in uh, like fades and trollics and all of these other things that can afflict um, that are that the, the shadow uses. They don't necessarily believe all of those things. Um, the history of the reality of these things are so spread out amongst the different nations in this continent that some areas of this continent or world don't even know that those things are real, whereas others are dealing with them constantly and consistently and it's a real part of their everyday life. So that's that's what you're kind of seeing, but that's how it's supposed to be. In this particular interaction, Bornhold is very aware that there's Trollocs, really fully believes in them, and and suggests that Maureen go get healing. Very moderate take for for um for a white cloak. Uh, to me, in my mind, he would have been like, unfortunately, you're gonna die. That's Trolloc poison. It'll kill you slowly. If Something can't be done. Um, and it is what it is. Like that to me would have been y'all say your your goodbyes because she's gonna die. He would never have suggested that she go to an Isodai for healing. At least and okay, let me say this. Not publicly. Not publicly. Okay, yeah. But so I literally was like, what? So it's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out. So obviously, and then worse, he said it in front of Eamon Valda. What? Like, that would have had Jotham literally get... The questioners would have hung and strung him. Like, anyway. So, um, seems that these white cloaks are a little bit progressive and they're definitely drawing a line between the two groups. So we're going to see how that plays out um, and how the questioners and what they're doing are going to be different from what the other uh, white cloaks are doing. Because you see that they do separate and that separation is for a reason. Moving on. So a moment that I really loved was when the group begins to sing a song of Manetherin and Moraine takes the opportunity to tell the group of their own history. It's around this point in the episode where I begin to really enjoy the development of the characters and the pacing has now slowed down enough for me to actually start to really enjoy the story. Uh, we know the overarching problem, but obviously it will not go smoothly for them from this point, but there are, but this is a moment of peace and the, the writers use it very well. This speech in the books takes place much sooner and is actually told when Moraine is trying to convince the townspeople to let her take the kids with her to save the town and themselves. Um, it is kind of what convinces them that there is more to them than what they know. I like the placement of this speech in the show, but I actually think that they could have used it in the same place at the end of episode one, but I'm not upset about it at all. Like, I just loved, and I, I know all the words to that Dagon song, and I find myself humming it, because that's just me. Oh, good grief. Um, but really loved that uh, whole experience. It was just really good. And even the way Maureen delivers it was just so good. Yes, Rosamond. Yes, sis. You're doing the damn thing. Okay? Um... After that, we find them like trying to make camp. It's been several days since they crossed the Terran Ferry. Perrin uh, makes the acquaintance of some furry friends, the wolves. 
his fear, his sadness, his shame, they're literally all written all over him. And that's really showcased by the fact that he is punish punishing himself for killing his wife by not getting healing for the trollic bite that he has sustained. And we have him alone gathering water and then this pack of wolves rolls up on him and one, probably, definitely the alpha steps out, just kind of licks his leg and like, kind of like, what up, bro? And then they all push off and he's just like, what? Like, I thought I was going to be mincemeat out here in these wood streets, but no, they just like, what up? I see you. And then they out. And I'm just kind of like, I love it because it's a big daggone deal. It needed to happen. And I actually appreciate that. There is something missing. I don't know if I want to tell you about it, but it is what it is. Still works the way it's been done. And I can totally accept that this moment is missing or character. There's a character who's missing. Um, but pay attention. Pay attention to the wolves. All right. So from then right after this, the intensity is kind of dialed up again. And we meet yet another foe. Um, lots of antagonists, okay? Lots of them. Uh, and it's going to have far and long-reaching consequences, consequences, which is the Nameless Menace. Um, it's nameless in the show only, um, but it is a Nameless Menace of Eric Hall or Shadar Logoth. Can I say Shadar Logoth is perfect? It's like perfect. Like they built that crap. They built it. Like, it's physical. So you could tell that the, they're literally there. Um, the set design is l so fantastic. It looks so, so good. Matt and Perrin, after... Because um, at this point, like, Moraine is, like, bum like literally succumbing to her wound. Uh, the infection is spreading. She's very, very sick. She's not doing well. And it is Lan who explains what the danger of Shadar Logoth is. And actually is the reason they're in Shadar Logoth in the first place because they need somewhere to be because the Trollocs have found them again, but the Trollocs will not enter the Shadow City. And so um, he takes this as an opportunity for them to kind of like relax uh, while Moraine like tries to try is recovering right and we really don't know what's gonna happen with her at this point we just know that she's really sick and it's a bit scary because she's kind of like the definitive defender outside of land and what he can do she's the guns she's the big guns so having her be incapacitated is is really scary for the group and land makes a decision and that decision has big consequences um so they're in shadar logith and Matt and Perrin have this very touching moment as Matt realizes that Perrin is really suffering and offers him his dagger, which is one that Lila had made him. And Rand and Egwene have another, have a moment of their own, which is kind of like this, no matter what, no matter what I've got you moment, like while basically overlooking the shadowed city. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like they have this little moment and they do it all without ever saying a word. From there, we kind of have Matt being Matt, you know, don't touch anything, Matt touching stuff. But, huh? Huh? He said don't touch anything. Don't touch nothing. But it kind of, like, isn't a complete, like, just blatant avoidance of the rules. Matt is kind of desperate. And well, this version of Matt is desperate. And so um, he's kind of led to this dagger. He sees it. It's ruby-hilted. He pockets it and thinks nothing of the warning that was just leveled at him very clearly and succinctly by Lan. And here we are. 
We're going to see how that plays out. It's important. Pay attention to it. All right. So it's literally almost absolutely expected that in any fantasy story where there are multiple people involved in a quest that the group will become separated. Want proof? Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, Game of the Thrones, Game of the Thrones, <laughs> Game of Thrones, and even Harry Potter all become separate. Their characters are all kind of like working towards a common goal, either arriving someplace or accomplishing a task. Um, and they become divided. It gives the watcher and the reader something to look forward to, which is the moment that other characters are all reunited, which is what we're now hoping for. Because at the end of episode two, everybody has gone their separate ways, not because they wanted to, but, but because they were forced to because of this shadowed menace. Um, and it also happens that uh, the wound that Moraine takes, like I said, has laid her out and she's literally out cold now. There's, there is no rousing her. There's a moment right before um, they, her and Lan leave Shadar Logoth that she kind of wakes and rouses for a second and Lan runs over to her and she's like, where are you? And then she looks around and she's like, oh, you've killed us all. And then that's it. And like, and he Lan, that is probably the only time we're ever going to see Lan really have like some kind of real emotion. Um, cause you could tell that he's actually <laughs> questioning his choices at this point. Um, and he's kind of in a dire situation because he, he doesn't know, he's kind of torn between caring for Moraine and holding onto the Emmons Fielders. Lan obviously chooses Moraine. Um, and when we least expect it to round out the episode, Lan is accosted. And though some of you may have thought we lost her, Nynaeve returns and she is understandably pissed and that is the end of episode two i really started to like settle in and enjoy the show during episode two i think my like from the moment of the song the weep for minetherin um that's where i really started to really enjoy it and like Going through the episodes, I just, like I said, the shock and the awe, and I'm, I am just was grinning like an idiot, like just like an idiot um, from just being so excited and happy that I was actually finally watching the show, um, that it was like that moment was just kind of like very peaceful for me and very like, oh, this is like just real cool, um, like too cool. And it really kind of made me love that episode, so... I really enjoyed episode two and I feel like it was pacing was definitely better than in episode one for sure. And we got to understand more of the characters and their motivations and who they are as people, um, including like when Egwene tells tells off Rand. That's Egwene being Egwene because she needs she understands that somebody like has to have some sense in this group, somebody has to be able to see the real things that are happening, um, the realities of their circumstances without being uh, covered in a cloud of suspicion um, and and being overly stubborn over how things are happening. And so, um, and that's a way into a T. Nailed it. Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. All right. Episode three. So it's the start of the episode. Moraine is super sick. She needs healing. Nynaeve is back and we get to see what she did to save herself. In typical Nynaeve fashion, she was not going out like no punk and she certainly was not going to let herself be eaten by no disgusting trollic. She killed that. She killed that fool. She killed him good and dead. Um, <laughs> using his own weapons, no less. Loved that. Like, And then the hair flip at the end. Yes, sis. 
let them know your bad girl from time like oh i just loved it <laughs> just loved it this was my favorite episode of the three so far um rand is with matt and Egwene is with perrin lan and moraine are now joined by nynaeve who is trying to determine how to handle the fact that her friends are missing and moraine is the only one who can find them who can't find them in the moment because she is super sick lan is intrigued he's like how did this have her find us she just some little country lass what does she know of the world how did she track me from Emmonsfield like to here how did this even happen he's like hmm who is you um and because it's totally impossible to him right like that that could even happen but it did happen and sis did do it she is really good in the woods Perrin and Egwene find themselves in the wilderness so do Matt and Rand and this separation gives us more time with each of the characters and we see how they manage adversity which of them is stalwart and steadfast which is purely thinking of themselves in truth this is probably my least favorite part of the books although Matt is an important character. He's not my favorite. And this section, while while they're trying to find their friends, does nothing to make him grow on me. Granted, it's not entirely his fault. But well, there you have it. And you'll see why it's not his fault. Um, if I had to choose, if I had to choose traveling companions, it would definitely be Egwene and Perrin, right? Because this, it's funny how that episode uh, is called A Place of Safe. Is it called A Place of Safety? Yeah, it's called A Place of Safety. Matt and Rand find themselves somewhere where they think is safe. And Perrin and Egwene find themselves somewhere where that's actually safe. So there's like this juxtaposition between the two. And Lan, Moraine, and Nynaeve are not safe at all because they're out here in the wilderness. And Moraine is, for the most part, dying. Um, it's, it's at this point where we actually start to really see who's shining right and marcus rutherford like i have said as parent totally shines in his moments of vulnerability with Egwene, you can really see that the guilt is eating eating him alive um the way he's feeling over the death of lila it's literally weighing heavily on him and he has his real need to take care of Egwene while he is with her and they are on their own i love the moment when he says that it's his fault while she's trying to convince him that it's not because they've, the wolves have kind of like shepherded them to this track of open expanse land, but it, people have recently traveled on it and the wolves have kind of forced them in this direction. And they're now entering this, this very foggy, misty um, uh, area of the wilderness and you can't really see. So he wants to separate himself from her and go and find out if it's safe and then come back and get her. And she's like, no, 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 no. We're going together and you don't have to protect me. And then he has this breakdown and it's such a sweet moment. And like, even the moment where he's like, she's convinced that Rand is going to go home and he's like, Rand is not going home. Uh, he's going wherever you are. And kind of gives a little sneak peek into what has been hinted at from the very first episode, which is that Perrin might have feelings for Egwene, which I, I'm like, huh? But it's not explicit. It's just, it's subtext. Uh, it's good subtext. But um, yeah, it's kind of giving me that vibe. I don't know. I'm thinking you guys probably feel the same way, but that's kind of where I'm leaning to. Um, and I just, like, I just literally fell in love with Marcus Rutherford's portrayal of Perrin at this point. Like, I just love it. It's it's spot on. Um like he literally embodies Perrin. So it's also, so at this point, we are then introduced to 
a very, very important character. His name is Tom Marilyn, and he is a Gleeman. And having him being introduced while singing a song is absolutely Tom. Um, he is uh, the bard, the um, very much a mix of Gandalf and who else? Like who? He's kind of a Gandalf figure for sure. Very worldly. He understands the world that he's living. He lives in. He's very well traveled. Um, he can definitely take care of himself, as you see by the end of the episode. Uh, and I just loved, loved his introduction, and he nails it. Like even getting sitting down and seeing him like, fl like fling his coat back so you could see patches on the inside. Like that is definitely from the books. Uh, instead of a coat, it's a cloak. But nonetheless, I loved seeing the patches. That was so cool. Um, how he even delivered the song, his voice. Um, yeah, just. I'm grinning talking about this. I'm literally grinning. And that's how I was feeling when I was watching the watching this happen. Um, this is also at the point where we meet our very first dark friend. And a dark friend is a person who's literally sold their soul to the dark one for glory or riches or power, whatever lies that have they've been told. Um, but also, sidebar, if you had just eaten, like, what Dana had served you, Dana was the barmaid, and and also the dark friend, as it turns out. And then you walked into the kitchen and saw how she was preparing the other food that she was gonna then sell. Would you not have promptly thrown up? I was like, this is disgusting. That, that was so gross. That was so gross. I would have called her a dark friend for that reason alone. Cause baby, people are gonna be coming out here poisoned. Poisoned, sis, it's gross. Oh, so bad. Anyway, so Rand ends up locked up in a cellar after having this super heart to heart charming conversation with with Dana and she 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 kind of like reveals herself to be somebody who has been dreaming about um dreaming about Rand and his friends dreams are a big thing in this world and um and reveals that she's she's called a a fade the eyeless a murderall all the same all one and the same and will be waiting to deliver Matt and Rand to this fade so that she can be get up out of the dirt that she was born in and become someone else more powerful more well whatever just a different person living a different life which is all a lie right um more often than not they likely would have killed her or whatnot and it would have been that that would have been it for her um which is essentially what happens to most dark friends like they don't necessarily have the best ending so I don't know why they believe that and whatever so <laughs> So um, Rand kind of gets locked up in the cellar. He's trying to escape. It's very close to the books. They've kind of melded a bunch of stuff that happened while Matt and Rand are traveling together into this one episode in that sequence of uh, series of scenes. Um, and it's cool. It definitely moves the story forward and it's very important. So I hope you guys paid attention to what everything that happened there. Really liked how that was done. Um, doing the way that they did it in the books would have been telling and not showing. So again, there's that. So them doing it this way was perfect. Um, and like I said, you'll understand as we go along. And I really, like I said, I hope you guys paid attention. Another moment that I loved was another character introduction. And this was that of the traveling people, the tinkers for short. And in the old tongue, the Tuatha on Mier. Um, here we have some more delicious casting choices. Isla. The actor who plays Isla, if you watch Outlander, then you'll recognize her as Jamie's Aunt Jocasta. Uh, 
perfect, literally perfect. Um, and also the actor who portrays Aram, another fantastic choice. He fully like just I was like that is Aram, yeah, hundred percent. Um, another of those moments where like I couldn't help but grin like an idiot. Like I, just, it was just so incredibly satisfying how Aram explains the introduction, asking for the song, do they know the song, all of that ceremony, and um, just nailed it. Again, very different from like because there is a character missing so it happens a bit it happens differently than in the books but i hope you guys don't get tired of me saying that. <laughs> i'm almost tired of me saying it but um still very 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 satisfying so back to matt random matt and this is probably the one problem that i had with this episode I don't know, like running from Dana, who is a relatively a nondescript barmaid who doesn't particularly seem to have any real skill with a sword. Like, was that realistic? Like, I don't really feel like it was. Um, Matt is trained with a quarterstaff and actually they all are, truth be told. Um, it's one of those moments when the change was not as well thought out as like it could have been because it kind of gave us the opportunity to see how Tom enters the quest. But them running from her and not being like, I'll just punch you in the face and knock you out. Like, I just don't. And then maybe because it's a woman, I don't know. Like, they both have, they all have things about harming women. They're very chivalrous. And I appreciate it, but she had a sword. And, but she didn't necessarily seem like she knew how to use it. It's not like she was an Aiel woman. If she was an Aiel woman, then I could totally understand why they would have responded to her in that way. But she just was some random girl. So I was just like, why didn't they just kick her ass? Like, I don't know, whatever. Maybe it's just me. Um, But yeah. So there's that. I didn't really like that. Um, but there was something that happened right after this, after Dana dies, that I did absolutely love, which was a transition. So they used kind of like, they focused on Dana's blood pooling in this muddy water to transition to the next scene. Her blood, obviously red, shifts to like a mountain range and a shot of land, a sleeping moraine and Nynaeve traveling on a road that's guarded by Aes Sedai, led by... Leandrin, who is Red Aja. Um, the blood used in, tr in the transition is used to trans, um, is used to foreshadow the Red Aja that we're about to be come face to face with them. And I it was like so good. I literally was like, oh man, that's good. Like it's nuanced and I love nuance um, in storytelling like that, especially like visually uh, because it could be, sometimes it can be done by character, but the fact that they use transition to show that was super super cool like you're thinking of every element of ways to tell the story um and then with the final scene of the episode we meet another character albeit to me a little too soon um and that's Logan Ablar and he is he has proclaimed himself um as the dragon reborn and they the Aes Sedai have captured him he's the man in the cage and he's accompanied by several Aes Sedai and Maureen is looking like what the heck shook right? Because she just, right, obviously she's shepherding four other people who she thinks could potentially actually be the dragon. And then they've captured this guy who's said that he is the dragon. So Moraine's like, ah, uh, is, uh, is this, uh, hmm. what have I found myself into, right? This is another huge departure from the books. In the novels, we don't meet him until the group arrive in a very large city called Camelin, which is in the east of Andor. Um, which is in the same country that all of this is kind of taking place in. Um, but I actually do really like that, like, 
how this introduction of Loghain happens because we're going to get some stuff that happened off off the page that we didn't get in the books. So this is actually going to be really interesting because we don't get this stealing of or capturing of Loghain in the books. We only get the aftermath of it and then they show us him after he's been captured. So just like in the books, this is after he's been captured, but just in a different time period. So just much sooner in the story than actually in the books. But um, still very, very, very cool to watch. I'm interested in finding out how they tell the story of how he was captured, how he proclaimed himself, what he can do. I want to see all of that because Loghain is very important and he's very powerful. And I want to see just what he's capable of. Like I said, this was my absolute favorite episode of the three. It was perfectly paced. It was perfect in my my opinion. There was nothing like I really could... like. In terms of like the story itself, having had no experience with the books or knowing what who does what or how it happens, it's perfect. Like I don't have any complaints in that regard. Knowing how things happen in the books does make it a little like, hmm, I wish that, hmm, I wish that, hmm, I wish that, hmm. But not so much for me to be like, oh my God, I hate it or I really dislike or anything like that. I'm happy with it. Quite happy. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to episode four. I will also say that episode three sets up a relationship um, and it's obvious. So, um, but I'm not going to say it outright, but there's just, there's a big setup happening in episode three and um, I really like it. And I can't wait to see what happens with those, with, with those two. going to be fantastic. Quite formidable actually. Name yourself, stranger. Landmon Dragolin. This is my reign. That is my favorite moment in episode one. Daniel Henney delivers his name like James Bond does. Like, that was the energy I got. It also gives very much I'm Batman vibes. (laughs) And if you know anything about the character of Lan, then you know that that's totally possible. Because he's that much of a badass. Um, Favorite, 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 favorite moment from episode one. Loved it. Uh, That's all I've got. That's it. It was gangster. That's why I liked it. That's my favorite favorite character moment from episode one. Lan, introducing himself and Moraine. One conversation. One conversation and you're on Earth right now. What did she promise you last night? That you're the one. Come on, do you really think she's any better than what's chasing us? Of course I do. Those monsters killed Nynaeve and Layla and half the people we've ever loved. Moraine has done nothing but protect us, tried to keep us safe. Don't you see how pale she's getting, how weak? She's using the one power to keep our strength up at the cost of her own. And she does it, even with you being the stubborn bastard you are. If I were her, I'd leave you behind too. Seriously? Oh, Egwene being all the Egwene that she, she's Egwening all over the place. <laughs> 
I don't know if you guys have figured out yet, but Egwene is my favorite character. Um, she's it's she has one of the most amazing character arcs in the entire series, and she's showing up and showing out as Egwene already. And I, for one, am super appreciative of that fact. I love how she gave, she handed Rand his ass and just like, you're just being an idiot. Like, do you not actually see what's going on? Regardless of your feelings over the circumstances and how weird it is. It's weird to everybody, but hi, hello, this woman is dying. <laughs> and she's already saved us multiple times, which is far better than you could ever have done. Like, you know what I'm saying? Love it. That, that moment from episode two was my favorite character moment. Now... For episode three. Because I know Rand. It will go where he thinks you're going. Come here. I'll keep watch. You get warm, get some rest. That, that moment with Parent and Egwene right there is my favorite moment from episode three. Um, uh, what else to say? Nothing. <laughs> I've said all that I can say about Marcus and as Parent and Madeline as Egwene. Um, and they just nail it. Like he nails it. He's speaking from two places because I, and this is where I'm getting the whole like, Loki feel like this guy either did have feelings for her at some point in time that he's kind of working through, but he knows that she's kind of like with Rand, but like, I just know that there's something there. Like, and he's doing a really good job, like of showing that there might be something there. Cause if there isn't, I'm, I'm wrong about that. That's like, wow, I'll be super surprised if the, the cast or the writers, um, or even Rafe himself comes back and says, yeah, no, there was nothing there. Cause I'm like, I'll be like, what? Cause it was coming off like that. Um, it's almost like parent is speaking from his own experience, like what he would do knowing that he had become separated from Egwene. He would have gone wherever he thought she was going. So, um, yeah, that was my three favorite character moments from each episode. And now I'm going to go into my most hated character moment and I'm only going to do one <laughs> because only one villain has shown up that I'm already like I want you to die <laughs> um, and that is this one right this moment right here and witches don't concern us sir we are just hoping to find a safe place to settle for the night before the night fades. Best be on your way. I'm sorry. If you would indulge here a moment longer, we have one of the questioners with us today. He will be thorough, but brief. All those who seek passage through our land must be properly questioned. This isn't your land. Children of the light hold sway wherever men walk in the light. Where did you say you were from? I didn't. But I'm from the borderlands, where men know how to keep their hands to themselves. Lest they lose them. 
Search the horses. They say the White Tower dispatched eight sisters to deal with Logan's army to the south. They can't help but get their fingers in others' business. And those others usually end up dead. I... Sorry, sir. That's a wound. Pain, it... Not healing well. What happened to you? You wouldn't be... All right. I, like, I can't even... Whip. <laughs> you know what this spice... <laughs> I can't stand him. Already, you can't stand him. And this is more of this scene is way more visual than it needs. Like, it requires more you to see what he's doing, um, not just what he's saying. Because what he's saying can, it sounds really innocuous without his behavior being attached to the words. Um, this character is despicable. The one thing that the Wheel of Time does really, really well is it gives layers of evil and not every person who is evil in the books is a dark friend or has sold their soul to the dark one um or is a part of the shadows army um the humans is what i'm talking about they the book is really good at showing that there is bad in all kinds of form without being sold out to the dark one um this is one of these characters who is absolutely despicable uh in just top to bottom terrible person and um his death is too long in coming because <laughs> we just got here we're at the beginning i don't know how long it's gonna take for them to kill him off but and i know it's not gonna happen in season one child listen I I'm, I'm gonna be i'll dance a jig the day he die on this show because he need to die. He needs to die, him. And also for clarity purposes, just know that he's not the only one who's like this. Like there are, and it's not like the fact that he's a man and right now it's coming off like all, like all men are kind of like meh. It's a little misanthropic here, but um, it's, um, that's, is misanthropic the right word? I don't know if that's the right word. I'll figure that out. But it, there are women who are just as terrible <laughs> um, in the novels um, in regards to just being just terrible people uh, who also deserve some sort of absolutely horrific punishment who are not sold out to the shadow. So I just wanted to point that out. Anyway, so that is my most hated character. If I, I'm going to just say his name, his name is Eamon Valda. He is the uh, lead questioner or lead member of the questioners of the children of the light and i can't stand him and already in the books he's proving to be someone i'm going to absolutely despise and in the books i hated him and now it's going to be a deeper level of that i don't even know if that's possible but here we are um okay so let's get into the actual rating of the episode all right so episode one i gave a solid three and a half out of five stars um Primarily because issues with pacing mostly, we were kind of rushed to the departure and there wasn't enough character introduction and development in that episode for me. Episode two, I gave a four out of five stars because I feel like the pacing issues began to recede and we got to see more of who the characters are and more of the world that they're living in, including all of the things that they don't know um, anything about. 
we see how truly naive they are and how much danger they truly are in. And even with all of that, there are massive amounts of skepticism and stubbornness. So definitely a solid four out of five. And then for episode three, it's a straight five out of five stars for me. This was my favorite episode of the trio. It was perfectly paced. We got an, um, a few more uh, much loved character introductions. One specifically being in Tom Marilyn, who nailed it, by the way, and sets us up for a look at who the dragon could possibly be. Um, if you're paying attention, the show has already told us, without the use of dialogue, who it is. Um, so those are all of the episode ratings, according to me. If you've heard that and you are a regular listener here, then you know that what that means, it's time for Twitter Me Laughing. So in this segment, I go into Twitter and talk about and read to you tweets that made me laugh or that I found were interesting about the particular show or movie that I have been watching. So obviously this segment is going to be all tweets about the Wheel of Time. First up, at Cassandra Rex tweeted, I did not remember about the parent thing that he does. There's a word missing. I did not remember about the thing parent does. Holy bleep. I yelled out loud and startled everyone in the house. Same sis. Same. At Joe Mage 6 tweeted, uh, I'm not really a Twitter guy. I'll scroll through, drop a joke or two and go about my day. I tied into hashtag wheel of time and it's consumed my life. I don't know whether to thank y'all or curse, or curse you. And then he added a gift. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time. We have things to do. We're over here on Twitter going down rabbit holes. This is what the hashtag does. It's facts. Um, at Tuta Kiki Richards or Tuta Ki Richards. Oh my goodness. I, I'm going to butcher that. Tweeted, this waiting for an episode each week ain't it, but we'll still wait for an episode each week. Hashtag Wheel of Time. I feel the, I feel the same way, but I actually don't, but kind of do, but don't, but kind of do. <laughs> um, at Audacity of tweeted, time to rewatch the hashtag Wheel of Time. I'm so glad this series exists. We are officially in a time in space, y'all, where Wheel of Time on screen is a thing. Like, it's real. It's here. How exciting. So exciting. Hashtag Daniel. Oh, at Mirda. Why can't I ever get these right? Mirdy, Mirda K4 tweeted. What, what, what are you people doing with your Twitter handles? Keep it cute and simple. Man. Um, tweeted hashtag Daniel Henny on hashtag Wheel of Time. Damn. Hashtag hotties. Facts. He looks good. <laughs> he looks so good. Um, at Pan Andrew Floyd tweeted, hashtag Wheel of Time, at Wheel of Time, at Rafe Judkins, hashtag Wheel of Time on Prime, hashtag Wheel of Time. And it's a gif. And it's a really bad joke that was corny enough to make me laugh. What's Dana to Dana to Rand? What's an Ice Sedai's favorite drink? Rand, what? Apple cider. <laughs> you laughed. You laughed. You know you laughed. Shut up. Anyway, at C. Chan Wright tweeted, 
After watching the first episode of Wheel of Time, I decided to be offended by some of the creative choices. Will I continue to watch the show? Yes. Will I continue to bitch about said choices? Also, yes. We are all the same. <laughs> um, someone who had a dissenting opinion. There are quite a few. I didn't necessarily include all of those because who cares about your opinions anyway? But uh, <laughs> at Geekosity tweeted, watching the first episode of Wheel of Time and the changes they've made already are stupid. Randon and Egwene having sex. Perrin is married. The Dragon Reborn can be either male or female. Why can't they adapt without adding a crap ton of unnecessary-ish? Okay, he clearly doesn't get the whole thing. Like, he's not thinking the whole thing through. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but I understand. Like, it, it's for a reader for of the show, definitely. I mean, a reader of the books, jarring at first. Um, at a folk song tweeted, see, that's an easy Twitter handle. And she tweeted something that had nothing to do with the Wheel of Time. So we're going to stop right there. <laughs> I played myself. <laughs> we're going to stop right there. Those are some tweets you definitely want to jump. If you are on Twitter, jump into the Wheel of Time hashtag, hashtag the Wheel of Time, hashtag, no, hashtag Wheel of Time, hashtag the Wheel of Time. And if you want to dive really deep into the fandom, you want to get into hashtag Twitter of Time. Well, that's it. That brings us to the end of the very first episode of the Obsessible Podcast, focusing on only the Wheel of Time. We're done. This was a monster. We covered three episodes. We rated three episodes. We went over characters, situations that I loved and character situations that I absolutely hated. All of that good stuff happened in this particular episode. And I'm super, super glad that you guys are here with me having this Wheel of Time chat. Um, you know I'm a fan. I hope you guys become ones too. If you're just discovering the show for the first time or uh, if you're a longtime fan of the novels, welcome. Uh, we are kindred spirits. <laughs> and since you're listening, you're already, we're already BFFs. Like I, we've talked about this, right? You, you listen to my podcast, we become friends. Not just any friend, best friends. So to all my new besties, I appreciate you. Shout out to all the people who are discovering my podcast from around the world. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening. Keep telling a friend. Don't forget to share, like, and follow. Um, and yeah, until next week, folks, I'm out. Have a good one. Bye.